You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everyone, to the podcast. Tonight we have um, just a special episode here of the Bible for Normal People podcast. We're sitting at Abba Java Coffee House next to the Penn State campus with our friends from, I gotta take a deep breath, from Third Way Collective, Lutheran Campus Ministry, Westminster Presbyterian Fellowship, and Wesley Penn State, who have invited us for a live recording of the podcast tonight. And uh, we'll be going live uh, or be published at some point mm-hmm. in the future. We're not really live. Well, we're always live. We're always, yeah. <laughs> right? It's I mean, live I don't in like, the fake the news sense, right? Right. <laughs> like, we're live. And actually, no podcast is actually live. because people. True. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so what we're going to do tonight is just a little intro because you can't assume maybe even people who are listening have heard Mm -hmm. of us necessarily, uh, and some of the people who are sitting right in front of us. We have two audiences, which might be awkward, um, but we'll give it our our best shot here. And then we'll just kind of reminisce on on the podcast a little bit, the journey that it took Mm -hmm. to get us here, and then we're going to actually have questions from the audience here. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com, promo code normalpeople, that's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com, promo code normalpeople for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com, promo code normalpeople. So why don't you go first, because I feel like I've been talking way too much. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm Pete Enns, so that's me, and uh, I teach college. I teach Bible at a, a little Christian college, Eastern University outside of Philadelphia, and um, I taught seminary for about 14 years before that, so I've been sort of involved in, in um, trying, you haven't lived till you've tried to teach Bible to people, especially if they don't want to be there, but, um, uh, but you know, I just, it's been part of my life to think about the Bible. I just have always been curious about it, ever since I was a pretty young person, I guess, in my teens, and then in college myself. I went to Messiah College, which is another small Christian college, not terribly far from here. Um, but I, I've always been sort of a questioning kind of person, and uh, I just I think about this stuff a lot. Maybe too much, and not everybody thinks as much about it as some of us do, but um, I, I've always been wanting to try to figure out what do I think about all this Jesus stuff and God stuff and Bible stuff. and. That's just the way that I've been wired, and I've learned to accept that actually about myself and not fight against it. So I, I think of my faith as really very much a journey, a pilgrimage, um, and not always having all the answers. In fact, realizing I have the answers far less often than I think that I do, and betting that God's okay with that, and with all of us too. Um, and uh, yeah, so I write some books, we have this podcast, and... Uh, you know, I speak occasionally. I have a newsletter, all that kind of stuff. I have a website, and I blog on it a couple times a week. Um, and it's all about just exploring what the Bible is and what it means and what do we do with it, uh, because that's a pretty big part of Christian faith. It's also a big problem for Christian faith for people who actually sit down to read it, and then it's like, oh, my God, that's in there? <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. You know, I, I mean, I speak in a lot of, uh, like, in Episcopal churches and um, who don't read the Bible. <laughs> I love, I'm sort of Episcopalian, too. But anyway, I, I spoke. How, how are you sort of Episcopalian? I go, but I'm not a member. Oh, <laughs> Nobody's going to get their meat hooks into me anymore. <laughs> I thought it was that. Um, but, it just, you know, very briefly, uh, they committed themselves a congregation to read through the Bible in a year. No, in 90 days. Do the math, how many chapters there are in the Bible. It's, it's like 20, 25 chapters a day. 
And the first week, I'm getting emails from the rector saying, can you come talk to us? Because people are dying left and right, and we don't know what to do with this stuff. Right? So, it, you know, the Bible itself can generate questions, and it has since forever. Right? So, and, and, and many of us are sometimes taught not to have those questions, and, and I can't do that. <laughs> so that's, you know, that's sort of what energizes me about doing this sort of stuff that we're doing. So Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, my background uh, went to which Pete, Pete's Moss, He didn't mention because I always just tell people, oh, he's my friend who has a PhD from Harvard. So I had to throw that in there. His PhD is from Harvard in ancient Near Eastern civilizations, languages, mm-hmm. something like that. Something like that. Um, so I'll throw that in for him. He's a modest guy. But um, I, I went to Liberty. So my undergraduate degree is at, from Liberty University in philosophy, which was an interesting mix. I was telling someone at dinner earlier the. The interesting mix of philosophy at Liberty, which is housed in the School of Religion. So um, I did that, and then I came up and went to seminary at Westminster Seminary, which I had wanted to go to since I was about 11 or 12 years old. Some people want to be firemen. I wanted to go to seminary. So what are you going to do about that? (laughs) Um, So ever since I was a kid, I wanted to get a Ph.D. in presuppositional apologetics, which is... (laughs) They, they know what that is. Yeah, clearly, the Bible for normal people. We, we all know what that is. Uh, it's very normal, right? Uh, so that's, it's a Christian defense of the faith. So it's learning how to argue with people of other faiths and non-faith about why Christianity is right. And uh, I like to argue, so it was a good fit. And my mom encouraged it. She also said, yes, you do like to argue a lot. Sounds like a good fit. And uh, yeah, so I came to seminary, and then my faith started to crumble quite a bit. Um, because a lot of what I was being taught in apologetics and theology wasn't making a lot of sense. And the Bible was not making very much sense. And uh, one of the people who was helping me see how much sense it didn't make was this guy sitting next to me. He was a professor of mine. And uh, then I became a pastor, because that's what you should do when you're really wrestling with questions of faith, (laughs) is get up in front of a lot of people and have to talk about it openly. So uh, I was a pastor for a number of years, and then, um, which we can get to when we talk about the podcast, so I'll jump ahead just to say, uh, then I ended up teaching at a university out in Phoenix. I taught philosophy, and I mostly taught philosophy and ethics, since that's my background, um, but also taught Bible um, in there as well, filled in for some courses, undergrad courses. So um, did that for a while. Now I do various and sundry other things, but... Um, the thing that's relevant here is I teach Sunday school at my church, which is Salford Mennonite Church um, up near Philadelphia. So that's a little bit about us. But maybe talk, let's talk about the podcast. Okay. Why, why do we do it? Why, is it? why does it matter? Where did it come from? How about like the whole thing? Like the yeah. Bible for normal people? Yeah. So um, somebody asked at dinner, <clears throat> am I a normal person? Yeah. Well, yeah, you actually are. And, and you might not feel like it, but you actually are. Bible for normal people really just means, you know, talking about things not just within a small sort of select group of people like either academics or pastors, but people who don't have time for that sort of thing. But they might want to talk and ask questions and be honest with people about things that they're seeing. And so I've always sort of been, I've I've always had a heart for people like that because I'm one of those people too. And so, I mean, Jared and we just started talking a few years ago about building a structure, I guess, so that we can form some type of community because there are zillions of people like that out there. And I know because they email me every day. to-do folder. I'll get to it eventually, you know, but there, there are a lot of people out there who, who likewise um, are, are struggling with uh, answers that they've been given that don't have any explanatory power after leaving church or home for about 15 minutes, and they realize it just doesn't make any sense. It works as long as you're in an insulated community, but once you sort of to college or wherever, right, it's like the world's a much bigger, more interesting place. And I've, I've known many people who have struggled with their faith in very difficult ways because of that. And so we wanted to do something that um, is where our energy is and where we you know, have our passions. And it eventually wound up being a podcast because, uh, you know, there aren't too many podcasts out there. We wanted to get in on the ground floor of podcasting. <laughs> Um, but I, Jared, I guess about a year and a half, and other people have said, you guys would have a podcast. And then Jared, we were talking on the phone, and he goes, on a scale of one to five, 
how much would you hate doing a podcast? And because he knows me, and I don't like like doing things. I'd rather just watch Netflix. Um, but anyway, so uh, yeah, the, the number was high on how on the scale of how how much you would hate it at first. Well, I actually it was as long as I don't have to do anything. That, yeah, that's right. That just sort of show is. up because yeah. I don't want to like learn a trade. I don't want to like microphones and stuff. I don't want to do that or how to record things. I don't want to do that. But the idea was like, you know, this might not be a bad thing because that's sort of what people do nowadays. They don't always read, even websites, but they do want to listen in the car while they're walking or whatever. So I thought, you know, this might not be a bad idea for us to sort of take that conversation and build a community of people that's bigger than us, you know, and, and, and see where that goes. And it's, you know, it's been sort of rewarding. You know, there are a lot of people out there who have exactly the same questions that everybody else has and not always a place to talk about them. So we want to sort of do that. Yeah, I, I, the only thing I would add, yeah, is, is kind of phase one was the website and, um, you know, Pete, and then every once in a while I would, I would blog on there, but Pete primarily. And then uh, just realizing that was really kind of one way. So how do we interact with more people and how do we help others um, understand? For me, a passion was there's a lot of really smart people out there who have studied a lot of things about the Bible, um, but they're not getting into the average Christian's minds and hearts and hands. How do we do that? Because I got to go to seminary and it's a very small niche of things to do and I got access to all this stuff. How, how does that happen um, for everyday people? So that really us wanting to be kind of the messengers of this wonderful scholarship that opens up the Bible as a book of wonder, um, and it opens up um, our minds to being more curious, which is was unique for me in my tradition. Those wouldn't be things you would attach to the Bible, like curious, wonder, question, doubt, interesting. I wouldn't have attached those to the Bible. Yeah, imaginative. Like that, right? yeah. So how do we get that in, into them and into those into those hands and, and minds? So you know, then it was the podcast. And then this year we launched Patreon, which I think has been the most interactive. Right, and um, quickly so. So we have a Slack group that now has uh, probably a few hundred people who are just chatting about this all the time. And one of the things that I'm, I'm very passionate about because I was a pastor for so many years is, uh, and one of my specialties because of who I am, was getting all these people who kept getting burned by the church and by their fam- families and friends because... The, the messaging, I want to say the marketing, the cynical side of me says the marketing of the church was come as you are, everyone's welcome, it's great. Oh, really? Okay, great. I have this really hard question about the Bible. Oh, not that. We're not that open. I mean, come on. We got to draw a line somewhere. Um, and I would get those people who just felt so hurt by that. Like, wait a minute. I felt like a bait and switch. And... Um, you know, and I, I had a class that I taught when I was a pastor called uh, For Skeptics Only. So it was the spouses of all the believers who didn't believe, and, but they wanted to go to church because it was a large church. We had about 3,000, 4,000 people. And it was a large church. And so we had a lot of spouses who said, it's a great family event. I love that my wife wants to go. I want my kids in church, but I don't personally buy into any of it. And so we said, well, why don't we have a class for you? And... Um, and we, so we had that class, and I led it. I created a curriculum, and the whole curriculum was them asking a lot of questions and me saying, oh, well, that's a great question. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and then them saying, well, then how are you still a believer? Like, how are you a Christian? I said, well, I don't know. Let's talk about that. Um, so that's pretty much what it was, was me saying, well, I don't know, a lot. They really appreciated that. Right. So, um, yeah, that's my passion, is more of the, the emotional and relational side of the feeling alienated, I think, mm-hmm. by your questions in the Christian faith and how opposed that is to what I consider the message of the Christian faith um, and how that shouldn't be, it shouldn't be alienating. It should be exactly the place where we can come with the hardest of questions and the, the biggest of doubts. And so that's our hope for mm-hmm. the community. And the Slack group is a place of mutual encouragement. And we do some book studies with some people who are wrestling with that as well. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that emotional side is sort of an important one that Jared and I, we've been sort of discussing for a while that, you know, usually you have a question and then you, you get into debate mode almost automatically instead of like, I'm really afraid right now because I've always been taught this and now that doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Well, let's talk about that. Like, what are you afraid of and why are you afraid? Or why does this make you angry, you know? And, and for people to... Um, 
I mean, this sounds like psychobabble, but it's not. It's getting in touch with your emotional life, in a sense, to understand why am I reacting the way that I am? Why, you know, why do I have a tight chest thinking about some of these things? And a lot of that goes back to, I think, not just how we were taught, but how were we taught to think about God and what is God like? And, and those things are fundamental. And, you know, in my experience, that's exactly the question we have to keep coming back to and asking ourselves, you know, what is God like to you? How do you understand God? How do you, I use the word imagination, how do you imagine God? You know, and I've been asked that question too. I've been asked that, that's a hard question to answer sometimes. Um, but it's an important one. You know, how, how, do you, how do you see God and how does the rest of your life sort of flow from that? Rather than just a superficial kind of debate thing because you disagree on this little point, well, why are you so animated about that? Because deep down you know if this gives, is the Jenga tower, right? You start pulling things away and everything falls apart. You can't have that because that's your whole life, right? And I guess, you know, what if God is bigger than that? Mm. Our, our theologies, our ways of thinking. And, 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 you know, I don't, like Jared, I don't know. I don't, I don't have the answer to those things. But I know what the good questions are, I think. And, and, um, and we just want to have a community where people are free to express themselves that way and, and to think that way. And, um, you know, without recrimination or fear of the hammer of God coming down on their head for uh, saying, I'm just not sure anymore. I don't really know what I believe anymore. Okay, good. Let's talk about it. Yeah, I would just, the only other thing too is we were talking in the car today about the interesting, the irony of that for us, I think, is that we've come to the place where that's the beginning of faith. So I have a lot of people who come to me, and it's hard for me because sometimes I actually get giddy and excited when people come to me now because this has happened so many times where they come to me and say, my life is falling apart. Oh, good. This belief, <laughs> like, yeah, the Jenga blocks have fallen and I'm, all my theology is just crumbling in my hands. And I say, oh, Excellent. So you're beginning to understand faith. That's great. We're about to go on a journey. That's going to be amazing. Um, it's the beginning of faith. So I think it's been, of course, you know, when I was going through that, it didn't feel like that. It, it felt like the end. And so part of, I think, our narrative is it can actually be the beginning. It doesn't have to be the end. And in fact, I think it, it's probably better that it's the beginning. Mm-hmm. And understanding faith in this new, vibrant way that's not hinged upon me knowing with certainty anything really um and how certainty is actually in opposition to faith mm-hmm. in a lot of important ways so and, and and seeing that we're in a college town if you haven't noticed right <laughs> sort of a big co- i mean that's the typical thing that happens to college students and that happens to eastern it's a christian college that happens to them all the time they're within a semester mainly because they're doing their laundry for the first time ever <laughs> And you know they is there the problem of evil? They don't know how to fold anything. (laughs) But you know um, you know the world becomes a different place very quickly, and that thing that made sense of everything for some of the students was a sheltered faith. But then they go to college where they're not sheltered anymore, and then the questions arise, and they've been taught questions are bad. Right? Faith means. You don't ask questions, right? Um, yeah, to which I just say read Psalms so that you're cured of that pretty quickly, but anyway. Right. Yeah. That's good. Very understanding of you. I know. You're not condescending at all. Not at all, no. <laughs> Read the Bible, you idiot. Good. So that, that kind of brings us up to the present and just mm-hmm. our journey. Both of faith and other, and we can go into other things if there's questions, but, you know, like I, I mentioned at the beginning uh, with these guys is the people sitting in front of us right now are kind of our guests for the night. So we want to turn the tables to them. And if there's any questions, it's okay if there's silence. Corey, if you're listening to this, there's going to be silence. Make us look good. Yeah. So chop all that out <laughs> and act like the first question came as soon as I said that lesson. Um, but just think about a question that you have. And we have a mic here. And, uh, yeah, turn, turn it over. If you don't have any questions, we can talk. I mean, I don't think we'll have any problem yeah. filling the time. But I'll, I'll, I'll ask the questions you should be asking. How about that? <laughs> yeah, we'll take turns going over there and asking <laughs> the questions. I can start. I'm curious about, you've had a pretty amazing list of Christian voices and Jewish voices on your podcast. Uh, what interviews stand out? What are the reasons for that so far on the journey? Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants, 
and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S. They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you're in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose and it's just my throat hurts and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescriptive strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. How about you? Do you want to, do you have something off the top of your head? I have two, but I'm trying to decide between them. You don't have to just give one. I mean, it's not, not legalistic about it. Like, just two is fine. <laughs> Thank ben, you. Ben meant to say one or two. Okay, good. Okay. So the first thing that came to mind actually was a recent episode with Naisha Jr. And she was on, she's a, a, actually a, a professor of Hebrew Bible at Temple University. Temple, right? She's Temple. at Temple. Yeah, she's Down at the Temple. street from us. And that was an uncomfortable interview for me. And we were talking about a womanist interpretation of the Bible, so um, looking through the history of black women interpreting the scriptures. And I was really uncomfortable, I think, because uh, Naisha Jr. like wouldn't let us off the hook about some things. And it felt, it was, afterward, it felt strangely like cathartic. Like, yeah, she's like putting us in our place. And I really, that's uncomfortable for me. And it was just a new experience. And so I appreciated, you know, don't label me this way. Like, I wouldn't identify as a womanist. I'm a scholar in this way, and this is how I do it. And just saying, wow, I think I probably just put you in that box and made assumptions. And, um, yeah, so it was one of the few times when I think I was uh, legitimately surprised by anything on the podcast. And it was really a kind of an emotional thing. So I appreciated, yeah, being confronted maybe with some of my own assumptions and biases. That'd be my first one. What about the other one? You, you go second. And I, I have background. 12. Oh. Now that's, yeah. But I'm not going to say all of yeah. them. Do not use, you know, what is it? Paul talks about not using grace as a means of something. Sinning? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Don't take it too far. I, I, actually, I really, did, Ben, that's a very hard question for me to answer because all of them have, I, I learn something with every, even if I sort of know what they're going to say, something happens where there's a twist put on something that I wasn't expecting. So I, it's 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 very um, it's always an enlightening time for me and a, a humanizing time where I connect with other people from different walks of life, different places where uh, I just learn things. But I guess you know one that comes to mind who might be really representative of many others is a Jewish scholar Ben Summer, who teaches uh, in New York City, and we were talking about you know how the Bible is inspired or what that even means. And you know, I'll bore you, you know, some of the technical kinds of things that he was talking about. But 
it, it reminded me of how very open and fluid much of Judaism is when it comes to just understanding the Bible, and you get to argue with it. You get to argue with God. That's part of how, what they do, right? And for Christians, we're not really taught to do that. And I just thought it was wonderful. And you know, along with that, it was, uh, he was sort of giving a taxonomy of different kinds of Judaism, which parallel different kinds of Christianity. And, and he's in something that's analogous to like a progressive evangelical kind of thing in Judaism. But I, that's, that's my own putting uh, the pieces together. Um, but it, it struck me how much, how similar problems there are in Judaism as there are in Christianity. For example, he has children who are like in their teens. And they're not really sure what they want to do with the faith of their parents. And he's also struggling with how to connect an ancient faith with young people who live in a very different world. And I've lived through that as well. I have three children, 30, 27, and 24 now. And they've all had their journeys of faith, which I would never have scripted the way that they've panned out. And, and you know, what, what do you do? I mean, what, what does it mean even to pass this on to anybody, you know? Um, and it made me think, like, I wish I could go back and do it again, get it right. But, you know, and model different kinds of things for my children. But, you know, they're, they're wonderful. They're great. But I, it just struck me that the, the, the problems are analogous. It's not just a Christian problem. A lot of people are struggling with this ancient faith in this rapidly changing world that we've been living in for probably about 100, 150 years now. You know, we're really in the middle of a, a, this large paradigm shift that um, is not just affecting a few Christians, but a lot of people. So that was something that just personally connected with me. But as I said, you know, all the guests, I mean, Jared would agree, they're all just, each of them says something like, okay, good, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, the only, I would, just because I named, said I had to, I was yeah. named the second, is um, when we had Diana Butler-Bass on, and this would not been too long ago either, um, she, the, the phrase that she used was code words. Uh, and how some people that she she'll go to churches and she'll teach and they'll basically say do you not like the bible because you didn't quote the bible really at all in your presentation and that's very unsettling you don't like the bible um and she said you know basically she purposely avoids these code words and that just over the last few months i've been really thinking about code words and how every in-group in every sort of socio-political or religious, it's how we identify whether we, we like it because it helps us identify that we're in. But the, the harm is that it also is identifying people who are out. And so just that was a really powerful thing that's been sticking with me of what are, what are my code words? What are the code words in, these, uh, in all of these places, whether they're progressive or conservative or whatever they are, where we're using them as a way to feel good about our inness but can come across as a weapon to the outness. And the positive side of that was Diana's, um, I would say her firm passion for imagination mm -hmm. and that we can, we don't have to use the words, the code words to be passionate about the Bible, but let the mm -hmm. Bible seep into us, let us follow the trajectory of the narrative and use it in ways that we don't have to use the same language that are sort of the check off the box code mm -hmm. words, but let it inform everything about what we do in new and in inventive ways. So, can I piggyback on that for a sure, second? Sure. What guess. I really think is permission granted. Thank you, um, Dad. <laughs> I have dad issues, you know. No, um, but you know the 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 relative absence of code words in the Bible. Um, I'm thinking of. You know, the, the Greek word for God is theos, where we get theology from. Well, that's the word that Greeks and Romans use to talk about their gods, and that's exactly the word the Christians use to talk about theirs. It's not a code word, it's, a, it's redefining a word and repurposing it, so to speak. Um, Jesus is Lord, well, that Caesar was called Lord as well. It's a, you're using the common word and repurposing it. Um, what we say, the church, which is really a misleading word, but New Testament, ecclesia is, is a word for a gathering or a church. That's a Greco-Roman word for community gatherings, but 
the Christians use it for something else. And I think that's the opposite of code word language. It's old language just being used in a new way. And I sometimes think, what if Christians talk like that today instead of using the code words to find out who's on the inside and who's on the outside? That's a, that's a, and I think it's a challenge that we have more and more today living in you know, the postmodern world or post-Christendom world, actually, you know, where people, you can't assume that people know the code words. So stop using them. Yeah. Good. All right. Another question. I'm a bit worried. Oh, good. It is amplified. The light's not on, so I was worried we were out of batteries. And <laughs> light, we That's good. We'll just make other people come up here and talk into this. Yeah. Break. Question I have is, uh, for me personally, when my view of scripture changed, that meant my personal faith practice had to change with it. How have your personal faith practices changed? Uh, across your journeys? That's a good question. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, I mean, if I understand the question correctly, the way you thought of the Bible, the way that changed for you also affected you spiritually and how to connect with God and all that sort of, is, is that what you're after? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, okay. I come from sort of an evangelical background where... Right. Faith is you read your Bible alone in your room at the beginning of the day, um, and then when it gets hard to, to read the Bible, that that kind of changes. Yeah, there's something wrong with you at that point. If you, like reading the Bible becomes a struggle, what's wrong with you, right? Kind of thing. And and then and then how do you sort of rebound from that? Um, I, I mean, I can only sort of tell you briefly something that took you know years of, I guess, change and transformation was I think. For whatever reason, whatever life experiences happen, learning to let go of, oh no, I'm doing it wrong, and trying to trust God enough that this is just where I am right now, and maybe God is big enough to handle it, right? That already is an expression of faith. That is an act of spirituality, so to speak, right? And to, to, you know, like I mentioned before with Ben Summer in that podcast, to sort of take a page out of Judaism and say that part of the expression of religious faith is sometimes to struggle. If you're not religious or spiritual, you don't struggle. You're done. The struggling is actually the expression of faith for some people at that point in time. The problem, though, Nick, is that is finding a community where that's supported rather than continuing that on your own in your room, you know, reading the Bible before you go off to school. And that's the hard part is finding a community that understands that too. So um, I, I can't explain the process. There's not 10 steps. It's just, you get to a point where you say, I'm just done with that old way of thinking and something else has to present itself. Yeah, I, I would say, um my wife was very helpful in this because she's a very concrete person. So her faith was more around practice anyway. And that was really helpful. I had to learn from her because I couldn't do it the way I had done it. In fact, again, another thing that's not great um, when you're a pastor is getting really tired of the Bible. So having to preach from the scripture and kind of like not at all enjoying that process. So I actually committed to not reading the Bible at all for um, at least a year. And it's because I had to unlearn. Because every time I picked it up, I could only read it one way. And that was very frustrating to me. Right? So if you've ever been so inundated, it's like parenting, right? We're like, I'm never going to be like my parents. And of course, you turn out just like your parents. Because like, I don't know any other way. Like, that's just how it is, okay? So I find myself using the same language. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm my dad. Um, so uh, not always a bad thing. Um, by the way, so but so I had to stop reading it because I, I was like I don't have a way to do this without these old patterns of how I read it. So how do you practice your faith if you're not reading your Bible? Because I can't read it. I can't. I just get so frustrated by the whole endeavor. And I found these the church calendar became way more important to me, which means the community of faith became way more important to me. So as a family, we celebrate a lot more in the church calendar. And that's how we also, with our kids, so we just got done, I, was, I posted on the Patreon page not too long ago that we celebrated Sukkot. So every fall we build a sukkah as a family. We invite people over every night 
and we read the we read the spirit of of Sukkot, which is about welcoming the stranger and it's about celebration of harvest. So we invite people over and we talk about refugees and we talk about um, inviting the stranger. We talk about what it means for us to be exiles spiritually and emotionally and other things. And, and so we use the biblical trajectory or the spirit of the text and we talk about how it might make sense to us. And we do it in a very concrete, like a sukkah is literally like a, a hut that we build as a family. And we do the same sort of thing for Advent and for Lent. And the church calendar becomes really helpful in those concrete practices. And, you know, that same with everything I think for me, I would sum it up this way, that used to be private became public, which became really refreshing. All the things like you read by, you know, praying by myself. Well, now I prayed. We, we have written prayers as a family, as friends, as communities. We just write out our prayers and we say them together. Um, we stop reading the Bible individually, but we read it now as a community and in, in larger gatherings. So I'd say for me, the main shift was everything that was me, sort of just me and Jesus, um, was sort of how I was raised, became a community affair. And that helped to really make my faith concrete. And frankly, the question of what do you believe became way less important. It was, wasn't really an important question anymore. What do I believe? It's more, what do I practice? And that became a more important question. So, One of um, our guests and one of my professors in, in graduate school, John Levinson, talks about this too. And uh, he was, you know, I guess a few weeks ago, I guess. But there was a book we didn't talk about that he just wrote called The Love of God. And in that book, he talks about practice. And it really, it really dawned on me. He said something that I've been sort of thinking but not putting very well. But he said the purpose of defining a practice in your faith is that when the struggling time comes you still know what to do because it's more than just what we think right and and that that is i think that's sort of the struggle with and i don't mean this isn't a cheap shot but i think it's an observation the struggle with the evangelical model it's highly intellectualized where it all has to come through and make sense. And when it doesn't, what do you do? Well, what's wrong with you? Well, actually, at that point, you're sort of normal. You're going through a process that is something that is common to people. But usually they have a different context for doing it. They have that community context within which they can actually be honest. And one reason I started going to an Episcopal church about seven years ago is because they're over all that. And it was good for me to be a part of something that... I could just sort of be who I am and not have to explain myself all the time. So community is very important, I think. The, the only other concept I would add was I moved from the Bible as an end in itself to a means to an end. And that became an important concept for me as well. One of the, um, one of the questions that I uh, get asked a lot by, uh, by uh, agnostic friends and, uh, and other uh, Christian friends uh, as well um, probably more, more so from the Christian friends than from the agnostic ones. They, they're more or less asking this question ironically. Uh, the question uh, is seemingly simple, which is just, do you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And for me, this, is a, this feels like it's a surprisingly difficult question to answer because I want to say, well, yeah, of course, obviously, because I'm a Christian. It's kind of by, the de by definition. Uh, but I don't a, I don't know what that means, literally. And B, more disturbingly, uh, I'm worried that if I say yes, then that precludes any, uh, any opportunity for salvation for people who aren't Christian. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and this is something that I've, uh, this is part of what's made it so difficult for me, or what had made it difficult for me when I started out uh, here at Penn State, in finding this, um, this community of people that I'm with now who are very much centered on bridging these gaps between different faith traditions. That took me a little time to find here, and a lot of other groups just didn't seem to be very uh, very interested in that. Now, you just told us a, a really great uh, a great story about um, about your family uh, uh, building a, uh, a Sukkot hut, uh, for example, um, during that holiday, and and I was quite refreshing, honestly, to, uh, to hear you talk about that because it, it sort of sounds like there is some way of reconciling this notion of uh, of being uh, 
Christian, and by definition, hopefully, uh, having some notion of, of that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, but also having the opportunity to say, well, but that's not the end of the story. There are other avenues of experiencing God that, that don't directly pertain to, that, that, that don't necessarily pertain to Christ himself. That's what's, that's, uh, you know, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, these different other traditions. So how, how would you guys reconcile, how, how do you find reconciliation in that, um, in that seeming false paradox or false dichotomy? <laughs> so, if I understand the question correctly, it is solve world religions. <laughs> Well, I think, you know, you get to a point, and I can only speak personally, um, not like here's the answer to that, but for myself, I think it's coming into contact with real life people who think differently than I do. And a big thing for me was graduate school, because here I am in this, you know, place where a lot of people come study, and and my classmates are Israel, not Jewish, Israeli, right? <laughs> or and they have no idea what I'm talking about. They have they have basically having your own faith relativized by being in contact with others starts you thinking, right? And and I came, you know, I, I was processing a lot because you know the hardest thing for me at Harvard wasn't what I was learning in classes. That was challenging, but it's just the people that I met who could babysit my kids, but I wouldn't want some Christians within 100 feet of my kids, right? So, and it made me think, okay, what is God like? What is God up to? And I've had to make decisions that, um, I think God is not fundamentally angry or vindictive. I think God is fundamentally good and merciful. And none of us can really help where we were born and when we were born. And I'm just banking on the goodness and grace of God handling that without my supervision, right? So my job is not to make everyone look like me, you know? Um, and, you know, what, what role does the Christian story play in the larger story of the history of the world and all that? Uh, that's, that's a bigger question. I think to me that comes down a lot to the cross and God participating in human suffering, which I think is unique to the Christian faith, and saying something different. Um, but like you, you know, when, I, when people say, is Jesus Christ your personal Lord and Savior? My response, well, depending on where I am and how snarky I feel that day, um, I say, you don't even know what you're saying. Lord, Really? Let's talk about your life. Let's expose you right now and how you've been doing today. And this week, let's see how much, don't pin on me something you can't even do yourself. But for, you know, for most of it, it's like it's a get out of hell free card, but that's not a, remotely what the New Testament writers were talking about. Yeah, my only addition to that would be, I, would, I tend to say, I think we're all fundamentally agnostic. And so that question is above my pay grade. <laughs> For sure, you know that similar to what Pete would say that I don't, I don't know. That's not a question I really know even how to answer. I, I would say we are. You know, you said to your agnostic friends, I'd say, yeah, I'm pretty agnostic too. Like, I don't know exactly what's going on with all of that. So, um, and if that's the case, I'm going to tend toward saying that's it's above my pay grade. It's not my job to determine. Um, which one of these is sort of the, the right way or the not the right way. Like we're discerning this together. We're trying to find out what the wise way of living is. And we can do that together. As soon as I'm, at, you're asking me to judge, I think it's, a, it's an unfair question. You're asking me to be God and to judge these different paths. I'm not God, so I don't think I'm going to be a good judge. <laughs> I'm not asking you personally to judge them. Just yeah, to be no, no. Clear. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I'm not attacking you. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Ben, other questions? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week, and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital, and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways, and that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy, and I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. 
It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for an Old People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. When a topic of profits comes up, Kind of makes me wonder a couple different things. So, in biblical times, were prophets actually thought of as prophets, or have we just written about them saying, "Oh, this person was a prophet," and they were kind of speaking God's word to power, often truth to power. And we have that in modern times, but do, are we typically recognizing that? And who would you recognize as someone in the you know now as a as a prophet? Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the first part, I, I think they were self-consciously conveyors of God's word at the moment, which is an important distinction to make. I think, you know, a prophet, and, and you weren't going there, but many people would think a prophet, oh, they predict the future. Yeah, about five years ahead, not thousands of years ahead. I mean, they're, 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 they're speaking the relevance they're interpreting the times from a divine angle for the people. Listen to what's happening, right? So I, I think they were self-consciously that. Um, as far as prophets today, that's a very, uh, I, I, you know, this sounds like an easy thing to answer. I mean, the answer I'm going to give, I have two people come to mind immediately. One is Mother Teresa, and the other is Martin Luther King Jr. Because you hear the guy talk, he talks like a prophet. If you ever read the prophetic books, it's like half singing, <laughs> it's poetry. And some narrative, and you hear speeches of someone like that, and it's this lilting sort of rhythmic thing that you see reading. You know, open up a, prof a prophetic book, and when you see the spacing is weird, that's poetic. And most of Isaiah is poetic, you know. Um, the minor prophets are almost entirely poetic. And I think that there's something about the communication of the divine word, which is not analytical. Or narratively communicated well it's best communicated in poetic or even song form and so when I hear a rhythmic presentation of something that has a rhyme in it which is you know much of the history of African-American preaching anyway there's something prophetic there but and prophetic too because he called the powers to account for injustice which is what prophets sort of did <laughs> you know um, they weren't predicting Jesus I think Jesus fulfills things that the prophets didn't know they were saying. But um, they, were, they were talking about their time, and the topic is almost always faithfulness to God and not mistreating other people. So, and those two things usually go together pretty quickly. So, yeah. Th those are two. I mean, if, if, uh, that's, I don't think of that question very often. Maybe I should. Who else is out right there? Now. Yeah, right now. And... 
I mean, besides us. I mean, who do you see out there, Joe? Well, that's all I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> Wait for the lightning to strike me. No, I, but I mean, I think there is something to that. I would just say the first thing that came to mind were a lot of people, I almost think more in terms of prophetic instances. And, and that may be true even of the biblical prophets. Like, we don't know what their whole life looked like. There are prophetic moments. And so I'm always asking the question of where can I point out and be a prophetic voice? And so following in the trajectory is important rather than saying you are a prophet, just asking when can I be, participate in and in the prophetic tradition? Um, where can I be faithful to God and where can I speak truth to power and take care of other people and call others to that as well? So. Them. Okay. Um, I found that evangelism becomes very, very difficult as soon as you feel like you don't have all the answers anymore. Um, and so I'm wondering, what would you say the good news is? Um, should we engage in evangelism? And how can we go about doing that if we're not entirely sure what we believe? You know what I just realized is usually we're the ones asking these kind of questions to other people. We ask the hard, good questions. Yeah. So I'll point to you. Are we done now? (laughs) Sorry, guys, time is up. Um, My honest answer to that is I struggle with that same question. I I get to escape that because of what I do for a living. Not intentionally, it just sort of happens. I teach. And, you know, what I do with people on a regular basis is converse over these things and talk about them. But... You know, I'd make a horrible evangelist. Yeah, I see why you don't believe. I get that. I really do understand it. You know, that's sort of where I, you know. But the thing is, you know, um, I, don't, I don't know if everyone is meant to do that either, right? I mean, I, I, I've grown comfortable living in my own skin the past number of years and just being who I am, and it's okay. And, you know, not everyone has, as, as Paul put it, the same gifting. And there are some people that do this and some people that do that. And I, I think part of the stress that is put on Christians, especially in that evangelical paradigm, is that everybody has to evangelize and, quote, lead people to Christ, which I think is a tremendous burden to put on people when they have not had the time to reflect and, and frankly, to mature in the faith. To do. It's sort of like, you know, we want movie stars and athletes to... Um, bring the message to people. And I've seen that, recently I've seen it with high profile athletes um, expressing their Christian faith. And it's like I'm listening to toddlers. They shouldn't, and I don't mean that. They're fumbling through the message? Hey. Can we cut his mic for the rest of the time here? He said n- none of that from the audience. You know, um, <laughs> but um, and, and, and that's not, I, I don't mean to speak in a negative sense towards them, but they're not ready for that. See, not everybody's in a place where they should be doing that. And the bottom line, getting to the emotional point again, that's okay. I think that's just plain old okay. You know, we're not all in the same place, so... So you're right, it does make it difficult when you, when you go on a journey of discovery and of gaining wisdom, rather than having all the answers at the outset because your church told you to and you've got this Bible that you supposedly have figured out and you know what it means to say Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior, when in fact that's a very complicated question. Um, that's a growth time for you or for that person. And it's okay to sort of, like Jared said, not read the Bible for a year or maybe not feel like it's my responsibility to convert the universe because I'm right, you know? Well, I I would say the irony, too, for me was once I gave up on all that, I became a lot more attractive in my faith. Like, people actually were more willing to listen to me once I was like, they come up to me. I think maybe it's in the culture we live where people are so turned off by a lot of that. The, the way, the posture of certainty and I'm right. And so once I was like, I don't know, everyone was like, oh, tell me more about your faith. <laughs> okay. Not your life. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is not your yeah life. it was like, hey, so you're still a Christian and you don't, you really don't know the answers to all these? Yeah, I don't. Well, that's interesting because I thought to be a Christian, I had to know everything. No, no, I mean, I think I'm a Christian. I don't know. You have to ask other people. But, uh, and that, it, it was an irony I found um, for me as I walked in that time that it, all of a sudden people wanted to have coffee with me they wanted to do the things that before 
they had to do because I was a pastor of their spouse or something like that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So that's interesting. But is it, that's a very good question. It's a very common one, too. So, mm-hmm. yeah. The Old Testament is hard and it has a lot of gross stuff in it. Uh, how about we just don't use it at all? <laughs> Um, well, I'm out of a job if you do that. <laughs> so that's wrong. We're not going to have that. Um, I, I think for two things. One, contrary to what we might sometimes hear from leaders today, the church has always struggled with the Bible. And I would even say the entire history of the Christian faith, from a theological point of view, is people finding different ways to come to terms with the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament. In fact, much of Judaism, the history of Judaism, is coming to terms with some of the stuff in the Old Testament. And, you know, violence being one of those things. So, you know, that's, this, is a, this is a recurring question of the history of Christianity, but they've stuck with it. And I think, you know, it's been tried in the second century to sort of, you know, say, okay, there's this one guy who came along and said, you know, this Old Testament is just incompatible with Jesus. So let's just not do that. And in fact, there are parts of the New Testament that sound too Old Testament. Let's cut that stuff out as well. And it sort of hung on for a while. Then people sort of realized uh, Jesus keeps quoting the Old Testament. <laughs> and Paul keeps quoting the Old Testament. So maybe we can't really do that. Maybe we have to stick with it somehow. And I think that sort of has put the Christian faith, only speaking of that, on an adventure for 2,000 years. Um, what has happened though is that uh, typically it's been understood that the Old Testament has to be at times transposed into another key so to speak which is what we see people like Paul doing with great energy is recasting the Old Testament and interpreting it in very creative ways to forge that connection so I think you actually would lose an awful lot of New Testament theology, right, by dismissing that. I mean, there's an old anecdote. Uh, I heard this in seminary from one of my professors who said, uh, you know, there's this um, missionary in India and he handed some really smart guy uh, um, a, a copy of the New Testament. He read it one day and he came back the next day and he said, this is amazing. Where's the rest of it, right? I mean, the New Testament quotes the old about 350 times. And if you want to count allusions, which are very hard to count, the book of Revelation might have as many as a thousand allusions. To, they, don't, they don't take a step without dealing with this stuff. So I think that alone just, um, we are not absolved of that responsibility of struggling with exactly what you said, that very difficult, messy portion of scripture, which at times can be so enlivening. And so I love the Psalms. I love Ecclesi- I love Job. I'm German. I like downers. I don't know. But, um, you know, but it, there, there are things that are very moving and enlightening and enlivening. And there are other parts of like, I don't know why this book is here or why they're saying that. That in and of itself is an invitation to even struggle with God, which is the very thing we see modeled in the Old Testament itself. Yeah. You know, um, uh, can I? I would just ahead, say yeah. I would just tag onto that. That um, you know, it reminds me of what John Levinson, one of our guests, mm-hmm. said. I don't know if he said it in the podcast, but at some point I've heard him talk about. I think it's actually in a collection of essays he had. But if we have, if we really have a problem with the Old Testament, and that's a problem for us, maybe our posture toward what we're expecting the Bible to do is the challenge. Because John, you know, John said, he, I'm going to summarize, but he said, you know, the problem with you Christians is for you, the Bible is a message to be proclaimed. But for us, it's a problem to be solved. And that's, so it's not even a matter of, oh, it's a problem. It's almost a matter of tonation. That's how I think of it. Like Christians were like, oh, it's a problem. And for Jews, they're like, it's a problem. <laughs> right? So it's the same thing, but they have, their tradition is built around the struggle mm-hmm. with God. That's actually what a relationship with God looks like is a struggle. That's what a relationship looks like with each other. It's a struggle. It's a debate. And that's energizing rather than, mm, right? It's not a downer. 
it's actually the very thing that energizes our faith is that it is a problem. Mm-hmm. So, that's and if you want to struggle, the Old Testament is there waiting for. In fact, so is the New Testament, quite frankly. Yeah. If you read that too, and um, you know, I, 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 this comes up with my students too. I mean, it's it's a good question, but one thing I try to also point out to them is that the New Testament is not as much of a problem, in part because it's a very narrow stretch of time which is very triumphalistic. Like, Jesus is here, raised from the dead. He'll be back any minute. Don't get married. Don't, it just, you know, it's going to happen. Paul was absolutely convinced. I mean, actually, it's important for understanding New Testament theology to know that Paul's eschatology was very imminent. It's going to happen soon. Right? I'm going to buzz you. Yeah, what? What's eschatology? Oh, eschatology is how things end. I don't mean the world blowing up. Just the end of the current regime, which is the Roman Empire and setting up of the kingdom of God with the Messiah on the throne. And I think, you know, Jesus was raised, he went up, he's gonna come down really soon and set this whole thing up again. Um, The thing is that, you know, that's a hard book to connect with when you're struggling. The Old Testament, a value of the Old Testament is that it it spans, I mean, conservative estimates, the writings there span about a thousand years. There isn't a hint of triumphalism in the Old Testament. <laughs> we connect with that stuff much more than like, aren't you happy that you're suffering? You know, there, there's very little, except maybe Jesus in the garden on the cross, there's very little, how long, oh Lord, is this going to go on? I can't, I'm, I'm done. I can't do this anymore, right? In that sense, you know, that's a, that's a really good reason, a theological reason to connect with us. We have more in common with them than we do sometimes with Paul or Mark or these other people. You know, I'm not down on them, they're fine, you know, but it's just, that's where the, the, there's a richness to the Old Testament that can be accepted without thinking every last line of it has to be equally ultimate for us when we read it, that's just, no one thinks that one. So this is what we normally do. This is our, for those of you, we give you the inside scoop. When we're coming to the end of our time, we say, you know, we're always keeping track of the clock whenever we're recording people, and we say, well, sorry, we're coming to the end of our time here. We have time for maybe one more question, so. What time is it? It's 8.42. It's late, okay. We've just been having so much fun. <laughs> but I can see people starting to go to sleep here, getting tired. Oh, wait, that's probably just me, because I have four little kids. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, to end with something uh, very controversial, uh, the Bible and politics. Um, Bible's a big part of the culture, um, and it just angers me every time I have the radio on and I'm listening to something, and I think about people using verses or or politicians trying to win votes by appealing to this Christian culture of some sort. What do you think about all that. using the Bible politics? And any, I don't have a specific question, but. Do you share in my disdain of that, or <laughs> what do you think? <coughs> well, I'll go quickly. I mean, you can answer. I'm sure you want to answer that as well. I'll just I'll start. You finish. Um, I, I first of all, I think the Bible is politics is baked into the pages of the Bible, just not the way it's used today. It's it's not it's not a means of co- it's not a means of supporting the empire it's a means of critiquing the empire and when it's used in support of power instead of calling power into account you're using the bible in politics but you're using it in a very wrong way and i think that's the christian responsibility whether you're in office or out of office is to call the powers to account towards justice and towards mercy and not figuring out the universe but just making sure people have things to eat for example you know and, uh, you know, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer is the very thing you read in the Gospels that Jesus is turning on its head. The rich will become poor, the poor will become rich, and the social structures are turned over. Um, so I want to see more politics and Christianity come together. I want to see the Bible and politics more, not less, just the right way, which people do. People, people, people are out there. I mean, a lot of people on Twitter are doing that all the time, and it's... It's good to see. Um, I'd like to see politicians who are Christians do that more often. Um, but the allure of power and, and, and influence is significant, I think, which is the very thing Jesus has to be dead to. You know, I just, so that kind of politics is fantastic. Yeah, it makes me think of 
yeah, how we how we might broaden our definition of politics mm-hmm. and engage in that in you know that you use the word power and I think I would also use the word establishment and how I'm thinking of Brueggemann he he wrote this uh, Walter Brueggemann who's a theologian and a guest and a guest on our podcast yeah early guest Um, we he wrote this book called The Journey to the Common Good and he talks about it a little bit in his book uh, The Prophetic Imagination as well but I was I was always struck by the Bible the the Bible the prophetic tradition which takes up a, a chunk of the Bible always used to to disarm establishment. And the interesting that thing that Brueggemann talks about is the God of the desert in, in the journey to the common good. So we have the, the God of the, the desert, the God who brings the people out from Egypt and the God who is kept out of Jerusalem. Right? So when we get to Jerusalem, we say, no, we don't need God as king. We want to, make, we want to, we want to have another king. Right? And so the establishment starts all over again in Jerusalem. And so Brueggemann actually c- critiques Solomon and how Solomon has just brought Egypt into Jerusalem. He brought the pyramidal structure. He brought the kingship. He brought the establishment and the powers that be. And instead of staying in the desert, he went to Jerusalem and reestablished it all. And now he's christened the establishment under the rubric of God. And now he's tamed God and brought God into the temple. And now we can control God. And now we can use God as a product, as propaganda, and so that was the brilliance or the downfall, however you want to look at it, of Solomon. And I really appreciate that message that, that Brueggemann brings about how we are called to be people of the desert. And that fits right into this narrative of doubt because doubt keeps us from establishment. Doubt keeps us from the pyramidal structure where we know what's best and we can dictate to the, that to the people who are below us. But instead, God is the one who pokes and prods and pushes us to the desert. And what does it mean to, to be comfortable there? Because it's, it's very human to create establishments. Um, and he'll talk about creating bureaucracies and creating systems of power and structure. And how if we look at the prophetic tradition, it's one where we're always, God is always seeping into those and disarming them. Mm-hmm. And how we can do that. And, and of course, the Jesus narrative is sort of the pinnacle of that, a disarmament of the Roman Empire. And so we move from Egypt to Jerusalem than to the Roman Empire, to mm-hmm. Rome. So it, it's not coincidental that the prophetic word word arose in the context of monarchy. You don't need prophets before you have that, right? That, that's that, and that's their job is to critique the power, to critique the establishment. Which, as Jared says, is exactly what Jesus continued, very much in my opinion, in a Jeremiah kind of tradition. Um, even having a career that's somewhat parallel to Jeremiah's, which is calling to account power, whether it's the Roman Empire or a Jewish establishment that wants to replace it. You know, they both have it wrong. And, you know, that's, again, Christianity and politics, oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> so when the, I think that the key, the point there is, there's a prophetic role in the church and the state when the church starts to look like the state. Right. All right, that's everything. So we're gonna stop recording. We didn't talk about how we end this. We'll just stop Goodbye. recording. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank well, you. We can for, do a, thank you for listening, everyone. That was it. That was. That's and good. bye. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.